good to see you all. Um, as, I was, as I was preparing for the talk this week, um, one of the things, as, as someone who, who is speaking every week and has largely the same group of people, um, uh, I guess not being forced to listen to them, but, but listening to them each week, you want to not be too formulaic, right? You don't want to be too redundant, and you don't want to do things exactly the same way each week because we want to honor the time that people set aside to be here. And as I was <laughs> looking at the sermon this week and thinking about how I was going to start it, I thought, man, I think I might need to like apologize to everybody because I feel like um, the same thing keeps happening, at least recently, as I'm preparing a sermon, which is um, a lot of my sermons right now are starting with the um, let me tell you about how this verse was misused when I was a kid, and then let me tell you what I think it means now, which means I'm basically just bringing a lot of my own religious baggage to the pulpit, which uh, is probably not good, but to be honest, I don't really know any other way of doing it, right? This, that's, you, you get me when you get a sermon, too. I wish I could you know, just remove myself from the equation and the Lord himself would just speak uh, to you, but that's not how it works. Uh, but, but the truth is, I, I had this theology that I was brought up with that at its very kind of base, uh, the foundation on which it was based is what I will uh, politely in mixed company while we're being recorded called, uh, it was based on what I would call your garbage theology, which is um, we, everything started with the idea that we were awful. Um, and, and not just like in need of salvation, in need of grace, in need of forgiveness. I believe all of those things. But like that we were really pure, terrible, like we were awful, right? And that was kind of the underlying thing that always preceded everything else we talked about. It seemed that no truth could be known without first remembering how unavoidably and completely terrible I was in every way. Um, That bit of bad news, not a bit of bad news, that's a lot of bad news actually, it's all bad news, always had to precede the good news in order for the good news to really be, you know, good. And so um, I no longer view uh, theology or scripture or God or you or myself through that lens, but for the first 25 years of my life, that's how I was taught to approach scripture and Bible stories, and that's how I was taught to, to start to interpret them. And so whenever I went to a story, the first thing I looked for was its judgment of me and its you know, its pronouncement on how 100% terrible and evil I was through and through. Um, and, and so I think that's why I end up getting up here a lot of times and saying, look, I know that I'm basically just projecting on you. You may have grown up in a church where they, never, they didn't approach things like that. I hope, I hope that's true. Uh, I hope if you're growing up in this church, you don't want to look back and go, I wish that they wouldn't have done that to me. I, I hope we're not doing that. But when I come to these verses, it's that kind of baggage that I bring with me a lot of times. And so um, I'm, I'm always trying to find, I have a group of pastors that we meet every week and you know, a, lot, a lot of time, not every time, we'll talk about uh, the, the scriptures for this week and what people are kind of talking on or what we're having some troubles with or what we're trying to find some words for. And the, the, the thing that we always end up coming back to in that group is we always, someone always says, all right, where's the good news? Where's the good news? Like, don't get up in front of people and talk if you haven't located the good news in this, right? And uh, for me, sometimes I gotta do some real spelunking in these things because I've gotta, un- I've gotta get rid of all the bad news that I, that I carry with me into it. And this story today is one of those things. I realized as I was reading it this week, it just had this lens that I was looking through um, that was negative. Uh, and uh, I just interpreted it a certain way. And to me, this story um, 
I just kind of read it without thinking through it much or studying it much, it just starts off as an indictment about how all of us as disciples, even when we find ourselves kind of freaking out a little bit because we are in the middle of some kind of catastrophe, um, how we are failing as disciples when that happens, right? But I don't actually think that's the point. And so I want to talk about today that in uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, um, what, that, uh, what that might look like. And I got a little tickle in my throat from a, from a science infection a couple weeks ago, so excuse me. Um, this, this is just like water with some purple stuff in it. There's no, no vodka or anything, I promise. Because um, it, it looks like one of those cups you'd hide something in, but I promise it's, we're all good. Um, anyways, uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. It would be a lot longer sermon if there were vodka in here, so don't worry, you're good. Uh, verse 35 starts with this. Later that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Uh, this is crossing over from Jewish territory to Gentile territory, so this might have been a little bit controversial, him even kind of proposing this. They left the crowd and took him in the boat just as he was. Other boats followed along. Verse 37, gale-forced winds, gale-forced winds arose and waves crashed against the boat, so the boat was swamped. But Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. They woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? He got up and gave orders to the wind, and he said to the lake, Silence, be still. The wind settled down, and there was a great calm. Jesus asked them, Why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? Overcome with awe, they said to each other, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So again, this to me reads uh, upon first blush like uh, a failure, a rebuke of disciples, right? But as I was looking for the good news in here, I, I want to suggest that there's actually some good news that I think there's three things that coexist in the life of, of these disciples in this story. There's three things that coexist that normally, at least I was brought up to think, that aren't compatible, but they're all three happening at the same time. And I want to I search out the good news in those three things. Let, let's, we have a list of three tonight. It's going to be nice and easy. First, I want to suggest this. First, I want to suggest that you can be a disciple of Jesus. You can have given yourself to Jesus. You can be in the boat with Jesus, if you will. You can be a disciple of Jesus, and life can be terrifying. You can be a disciple of Jesus, and life can be terrifying. Now, I used to be under the impression that being a disciple of Jesus meant I did certain things that I was supposed to do. I didn't do certain things I wasn't supposed to do. I would hold up my end of the deal, and then God would hold up God's end of the deal, and life would go relatively smoothly. Now, I never believed in those uh, prosperity gospel preachers who had the large coiffed hair and the private jets who asked me to send in the seed money, and then I would become a millionaire. I always thought that was stupid. Our church, you know, didn't teach that kind of thing. But we really did kind of teach a smaller version of it, which is if I do the right things, if I don't drink or, you know, cuss or hang out with people that do, uh, eventually I'm going to, all these good things are going to happen, and I'm going to kind of have what looked remarkably like the American dream, but we had somehow plugged into the Gospels. So I was under the impression that life would go smoothly. There was a kind of a quid pro quo that was going on between me and God. And I've come to see through Scripture and um, through all of life that that's complete nonsense. It just doesn't hold water, no pun intended. Discipleship does not exempt 
me or anyone else from having our fair share of truly terrifying stuff in our lives. I'm not sure how we transformed a story about a crucified God into some kind of self-help, get the dream and everything all together book, but we've done it. And it just doesn't hold water. And this story is a, is a good example to me. Because the thing you should realize is that we just kind of really go, oh, there's a storm on a boat. This is a serious situation that's happening here. So, so consider for a moment. I, I don't think I took the storm seriously enough when I would read this as a kid. But read the story in, in its context. This is a boat of grown men, most of whom were fishermen by trade. Right? I mean, they're not bothered by rough seas. They don't get a little queasy when things get a little rough. These, and, and boats were not exactly uh, fancy back then. I mean, they'd been through some things on the water. And they are losing their minds. They are scared for their lives. The boat is going under. This is an honestly dangerous, terrifying situation. Uh, in, in, the, in the version that I read, it was a common English Bible, uh, which I've been going through the last couple of years. I like to switch up versions every once in a while. It says in verse 37, there's gale force winds. Uh, depending on your translation, it may say furious squall, great windstorm, fierce gale. All these are translations for what's going on with the storm to try and give it some month. But I really like, it probably wouldn't read too well, but I really like the adjective that's in the Greek. And the Greek word that is used here to describe the storm is literally mega. That's the Greek word, mega. This was a mega storm. And I know that sounds like Sharknado or something stupid to us. It doesn't really, you know, have that poetic resonance to it. But this is a mega storm. In the Greek, the point is, this is bad news. This is a mega storm, and it is terrifying. It is the kind of situation where you are crying out to God. You are involuntarily praying, even if you uh, don't mean to do it. That's what is, that is what you are doing. It is legitimately dangerous. It is life-threatening. They might drown. They might die. It is a terrifying moment. And yet, Jesus is sleeping. Which is kind of funny, unless you're in the boat. And that's the second thing I want to talk about that's coexisting among the life of the disciples here. One, uh, they are disciples of Jesus. They are with Jesus, and they're experiencing something that is terrifying. And secondly, you can be a disciple of Jesus going through something terrifying, and it can feel like, it can appear like Jesus doesn't care. Now understand I believe God is love, unconditional, absolute love. I believe God is with us. I believe that God feels what we feel, that experience, he experiences what we experience. I believe in a sympathetic high priest, uh, as it says in, in Hebrews, who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, tempted in every way, just as we are. I believe in a God who is with us. I believe in that theology. But the honest truth is that there are times for me Maybe you're a better Christian than me, but there are times when it can feel like Jesus is asleep on the job when Jesus is most needed. I've had the terrifying moments where it looked like I looked around and no one was there. And I know it may feel like heresy to say something like that, but luckily it's all over the place in Scripture too. I mean, just look in the Psalms. 
the letters from man to God, where you will find over and over again like these haunting phrases like, how long will you hide your face from me? Right, which is like the opposite of the oldest blessing. May God's face shine upon you, turn his countenance upon you. How long will you hide your face from me? Why are you face down on the pillow when we're drowning? It's that near universal feeling that we've all gone through at some point where it feels like God is hiding at the wrong time. Now, I spent a good bit of my life convinced that if I ever said that out loud, God would commence to smiting me. And I would be smote or smoot or however you say that in the past tense. That no matter how true it felt, you could never admit to feeling like that. But I honestly think we've all been there at some point, right? I think what the disciples are yelling right here is just what we've thought at least once in our lives. Why aren't you doing something? Why are you so asleep on this job? I believe you can be a disciple of Jesus. I believe you can be on board with Jesus and going through something terrifying. And I believe you can be on board with Jesus and going through something terrifying. And at the same time, it can feel like Jesus is asleep. And I think there's a third thing that can coexist with that. You can be terrified as a disciple, feeling certain that Jesus is sleeping on the job or Jesus doesn't care. And both those things can be true. And Jesus can still be saving us. Right, in today's scripture, it says Jesus stands up, and in the Greek, it's he rebukes the storm. It's the same word they use for exorcism. And after he does that, it says there is a great calm. But guess what word they use for great there? Mega. It's three times in this passage, by the way. This mega storm is met with mega calm. Again, not the most poetic term. But however scary, however intense, however frightening and threatening the storm was, Jesus transformed it into something being equally as peaceful. It is aggressively calm, if you will. Sounds nice, huh? I could use a little mega calm in my life right now. How about you? In the midst of this chaos and his seeming apathy, Christ is in fact still Lord, which is really what the story is all about. It's, this, is a, this is an identification story. It's who is this is where it ends, right? Because you remember, the disciples are still pretty early in their relationship with Jesus. They've just started traveling with him. They've seen him do a couple things. They've heard him teach some parables that they don't really understand. There's still a lot they don't know. And at the end, they're just going, whoa, who is this, right? So I think that's really what the story is attempting to, to communicate, is who Jesus is. And at the end of it, with all those things being true at the same time, Christ is, in fact, Lord. Just as God hovered over the chaotic waters and created from that in Genesis, so Jesus here is bringing calm to the chaos. Christ is making something new. Jesus is setting things right, reigning in that which seeks to destroy his creation. Christ is still in the redemption business. Not in the way that everyone wants, not in the time frame that they would prefer. 
but ultimately the storm will still answer to him. That is the basic Christian affirmation. Not that everything will be fine all the time, not that nothing bad will happen to us, not that we won't sometimes feel isolated alone and it won't seem like God's asleep on the job sometimes. But it's the belief that at the end, when all is said and done, the storm still answers to Christ. Things can be legitimately terrifying. Jesus can feel wholly absent sometimes. And God can still be God. Undeterred from redeeming things and setting them right. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am in no way whatsoever claiming that it means that this storm is not somehow really real or less threatening or that they shouldn't be scared at all in the first place. There are still mega storms and bad things still happen. Paul shipwrecks. Everyone that's on this boat eventually gets martyred. Believing that God is still God and that in some way that we may not understand, we may not be able to wrap our mind around, that we may not be able to see in any way, shape, or form right now, to believe that God will still set things right does not mean that the pain is any less real or any less meaningful or any less suffocating in the moment. And I think to claim otherwise is a very cruel thing to do to someone who's suffering. My my point is entirely the opposite of that. The existence of that pain, the tragedy or whatever mega storm we happen to be experiencing at the time, the sense that God is not answering the phone when God should be, those things can both exist while God is God. You don't have to choose between them. It can be awful, and the story may not be done yet. One of the other scriptures that we could have gone through from the lectionary this week uh, is from the, from the book of Job. I almost said the gospel of Job. It is not a gospel. It is a, it is a long, long and disturbing book called Job. And if you don't know much about Job, the whole story is basically Job loses. It's the worst case possible scenario. Job loses everything that matters. And as he's sitting in his sackcloth and ashes, uh, he is sick, he has lost everything, and Job's quote-unquote friends gather around to do what good friends do, which is supply very easy answers to mysterious pain and suffering. What everyone wants to hear when they're struggling. Easy answers. But what all of us honestly are compelled to try to come up with, aren't we, in those situations. And while Job is asking, where is God in all this? And they are giving these uh, weird platitudes and answers, none of which hold water. God finally answers. And it's something jarring, but it's ultimately good news. And God essentially answers with the reminder that there is a God and it is not us. The key phrase in God's answer to me is, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And I know, again, that comes across as a bit of a slapdown. But I would argue it's one of the kindest things you could say in that moment, right? To tell Job, you don't have to have the answers. You don't have the answers. There are some question marks you don't get to put exclamation points on. 
You don't know everything in this vast world, the work of God, the answers to the deepest uh, mysteries of the world. We can't wrap our mind around all the things that we sometimes feel like we are required to have answers for. We are only human. We are not God. And we should allow ourselves the grace, the good news of that truth. Redemption does not hang on you coming up with the answers or the peace on your own. We are only human. We are only human and we're not done yet. And that's probably my favorite part of this story. And what I really like about what the Common English Bible does with this translation is my favorite little word in this entire story is really clearly laid out in this translation. And it's that little word, yet. Jesus says to the disciples at the end, don't you have faith yet? There's a lot of grace in that little word. I know we can interpret that again as a slapdown, which is how I've always interpreted it. If you start with that piece of garbage theology I talked about earlier. But there's a lot of grace in that little word, yet. It is the reminder that not only are we just human, but we are humans who are in process. We aren't there yet. Now, there might be a day when we can nap through the storms. Who knows? In fact, the truth is, these very disciples will see even more (laughs) mega storms than this one later on, and they'll act very differently and interpret them very differently and approach them very differently later. They are on the way, but they are not there yet. And that's okay. You are on the way. You are not there yet, and that's okay. Give yourself some grace. I'm not trying to take the scariest story and sanitize it for you. In fact, this story ends with one more mega, which is after Jesus says all this, it's in, in this translation it says they're overcome with awe. Really, a, a better translation is they're mega scared. They don't know who this guy is or what he is doing or what's happening. These disciples who are you know, really just getting to know Jesus, they are mega scared in the face of a guy who can bring mega calm to a mega storm like it's nothing. Because right? there's very few things more disconcerting than being a little old human floating in the midst of so much that is so much larger than you will ever be. We're not trying to sanitize it. We're not trying to act like it doesn't exist. The struggle is real. The pain can be overwhelming. The fear can be arresting. The story does not dismiss that, those very real struggles. We don't live in a 30-minute sitcom where everything is wrapped up neatly and quickly. As a disciple of Christ, there'll be moments when you are truly afraid. There'll be moments when God feels absolutely absent. And while both those things may be true, The story is not over yet. Faith is not the removal of all things that are not easy. It is that sometimes faint sliver of hope we hold on to, that the story is still being written by the one who commands the wind itself. Faith is holding on to that sometimes sliver of hope that there can be peace on the other side that is every bit as powerful as the pain is now. 
that there is a God, that it is not us. And maybe that good news can help us catch our breath when we need it most. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for scriptures that do not sanitize life as it is. We are thankful for a Bible that is messy, sometimes scary, a Bible that is not just platitudes that don't, um, don't resemble the real world. God, our prayer tonight is that we as a community might embrace the good news that there is a God and it is not us. That we might embrace the grace that comes with the idea that we are only human and we are still in process. That the story is not done. And that, Lord, we might leave space for each other. Or when we're struggling, when we're scared, when the world is a dangerous place and death feels like it's knocking at the door, that we might leave space for those disciples of Jesus who are feeling those things, who are maybe feeling like you're asleep on the job. Lord, in those moments, may we hold on to that one small sliver of faith, even if that's all we have, that the story is not done, that the author of all things is writing something new, and that one day there will be a peace as strong as any storm we've been in. Lord, we do love you, and we ask all things in your name. Amen.